This audio recording is of Restoration Road's regular Sunday service, November 12th, 2017. The reader is Noel Jander. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at rdchurch.com. Join me as we read from Haggai 2, 1 through 9. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Jerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who has saw this house in its former glory? Who do you, how do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Jerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst, fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the, Son of, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. We are continuing in our study of Haggai, and I'm going to pray uh, that the Lord will move me out of the way and say what he needs to say. So if you would bow with me. Father God, we praise you for your goodness. We praise you for your greatness. We praise you for your grace. Lord, your ways are way above our ways. And we cannot see what you see. We cannot know what you know. There is much you have revealed, but there is much you have left a mystery. And that is where faith is required, Lord. Trust is required in your unchanging character. I thank you for what you have done in this place and in this church. I thank you that this is your church that You are building it, that You are growing it. And I pray this morning, Father, that You will move me out of the way and by Your Spirit You will proclaim words that are needed, words of conviction, words of comfort, words of instruction, but ultimately lead us to a place where we bow before You and we surrender our strength, admitting that we are not as strong as we think we are, that we are not as smart as we think we are, that we need You, that we dare not go ahead without You, that Your presence in our lives is primary, that Jesus, You on the throne are supreme, and that we dare not turn to the left or turn to the right if You do not go with us. So we thank You this morning for Your Word. We thank You for the power it has to cut to the heart, to transform our minds and therefore change our hearts and then for affect what we do. Would you do that this morning, Father, through this old, old book that is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. We thank you in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. 
just to catch you up, after 70 years of exile in this place called Babylon, authorized and financed by the new king in town, the king of Persia, the Israelites are sent back to rebuild, sent back to their homeland to build a home or a house of God, the temple that is the center of their lives, the center of their worship. And so, as we saw several weeks ago, they laid the foundation, they began the work with passion and zeal, and despite opposition, they worked really hard for 14 years until they were forcibly stopped by the new king of Persia. And so the paneled house of God, the temple that was being rebuilt, is left sitting in ruins for at least two years, and they began to devote themselves to building their own paneled houses, so to speak. God had called them to build this place of worship, and they began to build their own places of worship around their own lives and different things. And the Lord called them on it. They wrongly believed that they could actually do life without God, that they could move forward without His presence, not realizing that the very things that they were seeking satisfaction in in life, whether it be food or drink or clothes or money or whatever it is, those are gifts of the Lord, but they can only be enjoyed if they are actually with the Lord. And so they have dissatisfied lives and difficult lives. So the prophet Haggai comes and confronts the people, says stop making excuses, and we saw last week they start rebuilding again. As they hear the word of the Lord through Haggai, the Lord, it says, stirs the hearts of the leaders and stirs the hearts of the people to obey the word of the Lord that it come. And we see that repentance and turning from what you ought not do towards what you ought do is itself a gift of the Lord. That He is the one that stirs. He is the one that moves. He is the one, dare we say, that causes us to obey. And they do. And it's now been 23 days since Haggai first spoke. And after 23 days, they started to rebuild. When chapter 2 begins, of which Noel just read, the people have been working on what will become the second temple for about a month. You can read dates. There's like four or five different date markers in uh, the book of Haggai. So you can figure out exactly when this was. So it's been about 29, 30 days or so since they started rebuilding again. And for the second time, God speaks through Haggai. And for the second time, Haggai comes and speaks to the people. And this time, the people are doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're working. They're rebuilding the temple. But the truth is, when the enemy can't stop you from without, right? From external forces, which they had faced external persecution. They had people discouraging them. They had people bribing people to stop. They had been at one point forcibly stopped. But when the enemy can't stop you from the outside, when that doesn't work, because it's not worked. Haggai shows up. They're like, we don't care about the opposition. We're going to rebuild as difficult as it is. No matter who says we can't. When the enemy can't stop you from the outside, he'll start attacking you from the inside. He'll start to rob you of the joy of working for the Lord. 
who sought to rob you or maybe twist the purpose of why you're doing this. He'll perhaps make an idol out of the work of the Lord. He'll come from within. These people having reprioritized their lives, right? They recommitted their lives. They were doing what God had called them to do. They were being obedient. It takes 30 days for them to feel disheartened. 30 days for them to be discouraged. And so when God shows up through Haggai, He doesn't come to confront them about their work. He actually comes to comfort them in their work. It's easy to start well, and it's incredibly hard to finish well. And I believe it's hard to finish well because working unto the Lord and for the Lord is difficult work. Nothing is harder, I think, than when you feel like you do everything right and it doesn't go as you expect. It's incredibly difficult when the the faithfulness that God expects doesn't produce the fruitfulness that we do. Like whenever, and this is really important to remember, whenever our expectation of God or expectations of God's work are not met, we need to understand that the problem is never with God and the work. Like when we're being obedient and we're doing what God has called us to do and things are not going well or the way we thought, the problem isn't with God. The problem actually is with our hearts. Disillusionment with God and His work is real and if it's left unchecked, it's dangerous. And that's what's happened to these people. I'm convinced that as you work unto the Lord and as you endeavor to obey, when things start going awry or things don't go as you hoped or expected, that kind of adversity, disillusionment, if not dealt with, it'll eventually lead to apathy. Where you're kind of like, yeah, I don't really care enough to be bothered. And so it goes from that that disillusionment, adversity, to apathy, and guess what's next? Idolatry. Where you begin to worship other things and find joy in other things and hope in other things. And that's the, the process or the trajectory of these people who are working for the Lord. Where you were once inspired and you're once excited and you're once hopeful, they find themselves frustrated and critical and miserable. But the problem isn't in what they're doing or what someone else is not doing or doing. The problem is actually in what we, they are believing about God. It's a theological problem. In order to conquer disillusionment, what we're going to see through Haggai, God's going to say, like, look, all, all that you do for the Lord in the present needs to be inspired by His unchanging character. In other words, you've got to look up first. 
And it, it needs to be inspired by what he's done in the past. So you're going to look backward a little bit. And it needs to be governed and inspired by what he promises to do in the future. So take a look at how God here speaks to them in their disillusionment, right? He doesn't avoid their disillusionment. He doesn't ignore the fact that they're disappointed. He actually comes close to them and he addresses it head on. And he doesn't come to give his people um, a complex. He's trying to give them confidence. He's not a He's not a taskmaster who says, look, you showed up the first time, get to work, quit making your excuses, shut up and get out there, only to show up a little bit later and start to criticize the work they're doing. That's not what's happening. He comes in to fill their mind with truth so as to inspire their heart, so as to affect what they're doing. So the prophet Haggai starts with three questions. They're kind of rhetorical questions. They're revealing questions. They're not really meant to be answered. It's God proclaiming what He knows to be true. And in verse 3 it says, Who was left among you who saw this house in its former glory? So imagine these people, they've started to work. They're working for 30 days. He says, hey, who was here back in the olden days 70 plus years ago, 80 plus years ago, when the first temple was there. Who's still alive? Hands? Hands? And he says, how do you see it now? How's it look now, guys? Is it not nothing in your eyes? So you hear what he's saying? They're building, and they are thinking to themselves, right? As they work, this is, this is not looking good. They're not joyful in their work. And if they continue with this mentality they're, they're thinking about, it's not going to be sustainable. They're going to give up at some point. The implication seems to be that they are making comparisons to the first temple, right? These, these older people in particular, but you can imagine the older, the, the elders, the leaders are affecting everyone else, and they're starting to maybe whisper, talk about, like as they build, like, yeah, you should have seen this 80 years ago. This place was awesome. This place, though, is going to stink. You could feel it. Not only are they idolizing what God has done in the past, right? They're just dwelling on what God did in the past, specifically with this temple. As a result of that, of that idolatry, they are struggling to celebrate what God is doing in the present. Why? Because it looks different. In their eyes, it looks worse. Even though it's, it is something, God says, don't you guys just think it's nothing? Although it's not finished, it looks uglier. It looks smaller. Or otherwise, less glorious or not as good as it used to. They're not finding joy in their faithfulness because it's not producing a particular kind of fruitfulness one like before. It's not going as we expected. I can see where this is headed. This is not going in a place that was as beautiful as the past, as wonderful as the past. Like what? How do we, how do we deal with that? 
how do we deal with that when we, when we feel like we've done everything right, like we're, we're, we're being faithful, we're being obedient, and as we work hard for the Lord, something different is being built than we expected and we don't know if we really like it. I happened upon, this happens every week, where I just happen upon quotes. I don't even search for them. People are like, hey, there's this quote. I'm like, oh, that works. Mere Christianity, which is just a classic by C.S. Lewis. Listen carefully to this quote. I think I might have it. Do I have a slide for that? Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. And at first, perhaps, you can understand what He's doing. He's getting the drains right. He's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. And you knew those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. Ever had that experience? What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace and he intends to come and live in it himself. Did you know, as difficult as it is, and as easy as it is, as things start being built differently than you thought, to go, what are you doing? This wasn't the plan, God. According to who? Like when things end up different than we thought, and that can apply to so many places, but you're like, I am being faithful. I'm doing what you said. And then it looks so ugly different. Did you know different can still be divine? And so these people are disillusioned because they're like, this is not going to be the same. And by the not the same, they mean less than. They mean less than. So through Haggai, God addresses the leaders and He wants to help them overcome their disillusionment so that they will continue not just being faithful because faithfulness without joy won't last. Faithfulness without hope will not last. So in verses 4 and 5, He he tells all the people, three different people, talks about the political leaders and the religious leaders and the people, he says to be strong. He says, yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of armies or hosts, according to the covenant I made when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. So he says, be strong. He said three times. Be strong. Be strong. Be strong. Now why does he have to say, be strong three times? Because they want to give up. Because it's hard. Like the Lord doesn't, you don't come and tell someone to be strong when they're feeling strong. Right? Be strong. Yeah, I feel great. I'm strong. You tell people who feel weak. You tell people who are struggling. You tell people who are disillusioned. You tell people who want to tap out and give up because it's not going the way they want. 
So in His grace, He comes and says, be strong. Don't give up. Stand firm. Keep fighting. Keep me first. Why? Because you guys are awesome. No. Right? Isn't that like the, the way our culture is? You can do it. Be strong. You can do it. No. He doesn't say be strong because you're awesome. He says be strong because I am awesome. I'm the Lord of armies. Like the first thing he's going to do is direct their eyes up and go, remember who I am. In the book of Haggai, God identifies himself as the Lord of armies nine times. And he does five times in these nine verses. I am the Lord of armies. I am king. I rule. I provide. I protect. I am in control. I am fighting. Get your eyes off yourself, your, off your hands, and onto me. Be strong. But then he says, again, be strong. And in many ways, I believe he's not just saying don't give up. He's actually saying just stay the course and do what I said. See, knowing who I am, people, walk by faith and not by sight. Be faithful to walk onto the battlefield and trust that the battle is in my hand. I have told you, do this. Do it and things will go well. You know what it reminded me of? Of Joshua chapter 1. We preached Joshua years ago. It's one of my favorite books to preach. But in Joshua chapter 1, Joshua is like the new general. Moses has died and now he's leading the people into this uh, promised land. He's going to cross the Jordan and then suddenly he's going to be facing all of these nations. These battle-hardened armies and they are basically, you know, nomadic Israelites. All the older people have been killed off in the wilderness and now he's taking their kids in. They're not little kids, but they're, they're younger. They're strong, but it's not like they've got like swords and stuff. And what does he tell Joshua? Among other things, in Joshua chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, he says three times, Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to the fathers to give them. Only be strong and courageous. In what way? Being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Don't turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may have good success wherever you go. Like, he doesn't say like, hey, just really practice with your swords and stuff. He doesn't say make sure you've, you've really concentrated on your training and, and make sure your strategies are, are there. Like, you know, one of his strategies is basically like, I want you to march around a city and scream at them and the walls will fall down. I don't know how that would work in today's military, but it probably would not be very successful. But he says, just listen to me. Do what I say. It seems like when things go difficult, like that's, those are the first things we kind of throw out. Well, what God has asked us to do ain't working. Let's invent some new things. Basically, God is trying to tell the people, like, don't get creative. 
Don't, don't start inventing new strategies or, or, or change everything you do because things aren't going well. Be faithful. Just be faithful to what I've said to do and it will go well. And even if the battle doesn't go as you expect, stay the course, be faithful, take the long obedience in the same direction and trust that I am there. Which is the last thing he says. Like he says, be strong. Why? Because I'm with you. My spirit is in your midst, he says. I haven't left you. You are not alone. All too often we think when things go difficult, we're like, what? where did God go? Adversity isn't the sign of God's absence. It's actually the opportunity to be deeply more in His presence. And because He says, my spirit is with you, right? He can, he can ask us to do whatever it is need to do because the Spirit is the one who's going to help us do it. Like Joshua 1.9, as you continue to read down that be strong and courageous, he says again, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Don't be frightened. Don't be dismayed. Why? Because it's not scary? No, it's going to be super scary. Don't be afraid because the Lord God is with you wherever you go. Like he basically tells Joshua, yeah, walk that direction. He's like, yeah, there's like a lot of armies in that direction. You just walk that direction. And we're going to fight them. Just, just, just put your foot on the battlefield. Just, just put it there. And then put the next one forward. And this is the guy that, like when they did that, as they started battling, God's throwing down hailstones to kill people. More people were killed, the enemies of God, with hailstones than swords. Imagine, like, I'm going to get you! Like, sweet, right? What kind of confidence would you have in that? I'll keep moving forward. And he's like, whatever. Boom! Another hailstone. And God just says, you, you, you got to be on the battlefield or you're not going to see the hailstones fall. Start walking. I'm with you. I'm there. I'm in front of you. I'm behind you. I'm over you. Be strong. Stop looking to your own strength. Stop looking to what you can accomplish and trust that I am there. Be strong. Be strong. Be strong. Remember who I am. Do what I say. I will get it done. But the battle is, the battle is hard, right? And the Lord doesn't pretend that that's not true. He just says, yes, the battle is hard. Yes, it's different than you expected, but the battle is mine. It may not be as glorious as you imagined, but it's exactly as God planned. And what I titled the sermon was, it's a different kind of glorious. It's a different kind of glorious. Because we have this idea of, I know how my family's going to go. I know how my job's going to go. I know how my life's going to go, my church is going to go, and then it starts going off. You're like, well, what happened? You're like, there must be something wrong. What if it's 100% right? I think sometimes you're like, I could be okay with that. If, if God, if you just have a hand on the wall and tell me, it's going to be okay, right? Or explanation, like a shaft of light comes down. Let me tell you all the amazing things that are happening that you didn't think about. Like, like we would suddenly feel more at peace that it's going different than what we might have imagined. And I don't think that's the case. I actually love what 
God said through Habakkuk, yeah, it's another book in the Bible, another prophet. And he came to him, and this was before the enemies of God were actually raised. God raised up the enemies of God. I believe it was the Assyrians to actually conquer. And here's what he told Habakkuk to tell the people. He says, look among the nations and see and wonder and be astounded. For I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told you. You see, like even if God came and said, okay, I'm going to do it a little bit different than you expect. This is what's going to happen. We kind of believe it like, okay, I could be okay with that. You wouldn't believe him. His ways are so above your ways. His thoughts are so above your thoughts. We don't need to know exactly what God is doing. We just need to trust that He is doing it. That's where the faith is. Who is God? He is the Lord of armies. Who is God? He is great and good and gracious and sovereign and holy. I will trust. And after telling them to remember who He is, the second thing He does to deal with their disillusionment is to say, I want you to remember what I've done. Don't forget who I am and don't forget what I've done. In verse 6 and 7, he says, For once again, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land and I will shake all the nations so that the treasure of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory. When we are apt to doubt God's faithfulness or His ability to bring about a new and different kind of fruitfulness through what seems less awesome to us. We ought to remember, we ought to set our minds on what He has done. He says, for once again, implying that there was a time, many times, where He shook the heavens and the earth. We need to remember God's fulfilled promises. We need to remember God's past faithfulness. We need to remember God's mighty works. That's why Paul in Romans says, the Old Testament, the Scriptures are written for our encouragement that we might have hope. Do, you underst- do we understand the God who we believe? The, we believe in a God who created the entire universe with a word. We, we, we believe in a God who tells the seas where to stop, the rains when to fall, the winds when to blow, the thunder when to roar, the sun when to shine. We, we believe in a God who uncovered the entire globe with water to cleanse the world from wickedness. We believe in a God who crushed the Egyptian empire. And it's difficult to understand how how powerful the empire of Egypt was at that time and has never experienced again. And he crushed it with locusts and you know hail and all these things. He split the Red Sea. He saved his people from slavery. And guess what? All his people did was watch him do it. When they came to the Red Sea, and they're like looking at this huge ocean and they have a million people there and they're looking at the hills as the chariots are coming down. You know what God said? Shut up and watch what I do. Be still and you watch what I do. Not, start swimming! 
We believe in the God who, when Joshua was battling, stopped the sun, like stopped everything, and killed people with hailstones, brought walls of cities down with trumpets. We believe in a God who can speak, should he choose, through a burning bush, through a beast of burden, through broken men. We, we believe in a God who raises up kings to conquer nations, who humbles them and makes them eat grass like animals. Go ahead read the case of Nebuchadnezzar. Who stirs their hearts, pagan kings who rule the world and never give anything up to anybody. I want you to build a house for me. And he does. We believe in a God who knows the number of hairs on our head, the name of every star, the time and place that every life, unborn, elderly animal will, will leave. We know a God and believe in a God who sees the past, the present, and the future all at the same time. Do we understand who we believe in and what He has done? And that doesn't even begin to touch the personal experiences that we probably all have, stories in our life of when God has proven faithful, when God showed up where I didn't know what was going to happen, and He provided again and again and again and again. And more than anything, what do we look back to? The, the gospel? We believe in God who, who enters into our lives to dwell with us, coming through a miraculous birth. A God who understands us because He has lived a life like us. A God who endured every temptation, suffered every wrong, healed the sick, fed thousands with a kid's lunch, made the blind to see, caused the lame to walk, and ultimately died in our place so that we can be with an eternity with Him and trust Him right now. That's the God we believe in. It's amazing when we consider like how things go different in our lives. We get disillusioned and frustrated and discouraged. And we're like, where did you go, God? We should read passages like Romans 8. It says, if God is for us, who can be against us proven by the Gospel? If He didn't spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Do we think God is not able to do something? Not willing to do something? God is a gracious Father who loves us perfectly and always gives us His best. And He's a sovereign God who has the power to make sure His best is given. Remembering what God has done in the past, particularly what He's done on the cross, is not about personal empowerment. So like, okay, now that I remember what God has done, I can do it. It's about dwelling on the works of the Lord so that when things become discouraging, we can say, He can do it. And He is willing and able to do whatever it takes to do it. That's where we rest. That's where we find strength to keep going and to continue and not grow weary of doing good. But all of these things took place, right? 
The cross and the plan of redemption took place so that God could could bring about this plan and dwell with His people. And everything that has happened and everything that is happening is preparing us for what is going to happen, right? He tells His people, look, I, I want you to look upward. I want you to see who I am. Remember who I am. And then I want you to look backward and remember what I've done and where you've come from and them in particular, right? I brought you out of exile. I stirred the heart of a pagan king so that you could be home and build this house to me. And now he says, I want you to look forward of what is yet to come. Not only must we remember when we get discouraged what God or who God is and what He's done, but the promises of what He will do. In verse 9 of Haggai, it says that the latter or final glory of his house is going to be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. You know, sometimes we get so focused um, on our work that we fail to remember God's work. And what I mean by that is there's a greater glory beyond this world. And although the second temple gets built, and the second temple is in some ways bigger and quote better than the first, that's not the glory that God is talking about. Did you know that everything in this life is a temporary means to prepare us for something permanent? Everything in this life, every experience, every trial, every gift is a temporary tool to prepare us for something permanent. If you turn to the book of Hebrews, the same phrase that is used in Haggai is used here in Hebrews talking about this future kingdom that's being built. And he begins by, the writer of Hebrews begins by talking about Sinai and and when God's glory came about and how they could not approach and, and they would die if they touched the mountain and all these things. And then it gets to the end of Hebrews chapter 12 and it says this, verse 26, at that time, His voice shook the earth. I was at Sinai, at the mountain. But now He has promised, quote, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made, in order the things that cannot be shaken may remain. He says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. A kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us not forget that our lives were bought and purchased by the blood of Jesus, and we are part of His story. He is not part of ours. This is His story, His creation, His plan. He is doing something. 
heavenly kingdom work, like the kingdom, we, we pray these prayers, right? Our Father, maybe you pray this with your children, maybe you pray this yourself, our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Be careful praying that. Are you ready to receive God's kingdom as it unfolds in your life? Really? Because the heavenly work, the heavenly kingdom sometimes unfolds very differently than you might want or expect. It doesn't look like the building of earthly kingdom all the time. In fact, it often looks like suffering. Suffering and trial seem to be some of the best building materials God uses to build His kingdom. But as we, we look to the Lord, like as, as we work for Him, whether it be in our homes, in our jobs, in our churches, in our communities, we need to remember who is building and what He's actually building. Because whatever doesn't meet our expectations as things unfold, always meet God's. Did you know that? That's difficult as we suffer. It's difficult as we get discouraged. It's difficult as we get disillusioned by some of the things in our lives that just don't go the way we thought they were. And they go really poorly. And we go, wow, this must be outside of what God expected. This must be outside of what God planned for. No, no, no. God is never surprised. Did you know that almost everything in our life can be shaken? Our bank accounts, doesn't take much to get those shaken up. Our plans can be shaken. Our families can be shaken. Our homes can be shaken. Our Jobs can be shaken. Our health can be shaken. We cannot find peace in any of those things. And I mean true, abiding, deep, eternal peace because all those things can be lost given enough time. Every single one of them. But what cannot be lost and what cannot be taken away and what cannot be shaken is the kingdom of Jesus Christ of whom if you confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, and you are a citizen of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Jesus is King. Jesus is ruling. Jesus is coming again. And that should be our inspiration. That is why we work. We don't work. See, they're working so they can produce a certain kind of fruit. And when it's not going the way they thought, they're like, oh, it must be a problem. God's like, no, I'm still glorified. Do you realize that God is glorified even if every single one of you plugged your ears right now and I preached to people who didn't listen to me, God is still glorified. Because as we work, God isn't glorified by the fruit that's produced from that, though I pray that that actually happens. He is glorified primarily by our hearts in that work, trusting Him with our hands and our feet and our stuff. If you base your faith on the fruit that God produces in your life, you may be disappointed. Because the fruit you expect may be different than the fruit God plans. What I do know is that the kingdom of God cannot be shaken. And I could lose it all. And I mean all. I could lose my job. 
I could lose my wife and my kids. I could lose my reputation. But I can't lose Jesus because Jesus can't lose me. And so the question for all of us is, are you feeling disillusioned? It happens to us all. Even to the best of the disciples. I want you to think for a second the experience of the disciples on the week Jesus was arrested and then crucified. The week starts awesome. High expectations. He's coming in on a donkey. People are like singing and praising like, oh, here's the king of David. Woo, yeah, just excited. Disciples walking right beside Jesus. How do you think they're feeling? That's right, I'll walk on palm branches too, right? They're feeling pretty good. Things are going well. Jesus says, hey, I want you to go to that guy. Ask him for a room. Really, we're just going to ask him if we can use room. Tell him the Lord needs it. All right. So they go up. So we need to use your room. I got your room. The Lord needs it. Sure, you should use it. Everything's going well. They have a feast. And Jesus is like, hey, let's, let's go to the garden. We're going to go pray and stuff tonight. Really? You want to go pray in the garden at night? All right, cool, whatever. So they go, and they're praying, and then the soldiers show up to arrest them. And, and they fight it a little bit, but most of them flee. But as a couple of them follow, they've got to be thinking, well, he's, he's innocent. He didn't do anything. I, I know how this is going to end up. They're going to you know, slap him on the wrist, whatever, and they'll let him go. Because he didn't do anything. Next thing you know, he gets charged. Like, what? What's going on? And then the next thing you know, he's, he's before Pilate, and they're, they're saying, hey, who, who should we release, this murderer or, or Jesus? And they're like, oh, give us the murderer, kill Jesus. And like, what, what's, going, what's going on? This, this is not what we expected. Wait, wait, wait. And then they beat him. Okay, maybe they're just going to beat him. Maybe they're just going like, to like really give him a really good beating and then let him go. And, and they don't. They take him to the cross, and then, and then he dies. Think they're disillusioned a little bit? This is not the plan, Jesus. Although he told multiple times, this is not the plan. And imagine Saturday. As Jesus is in the tomb and they're just like, what, what, what happened? They're just, we, le we left everything for him. They're just three years of our lives. Wasted. The guy's dead. The guy who raised other people from the dead. The guy who fed thousands of people with a few fit. Like, he, he's dead. It's, it's done. It's over. Can you imagine that experience? Think they'd be discouraged doing the work of the Lord? But the resurrection proved that there was nothing wrong with the plan. And there was everything wrong with their expectations. They expected a certain kind of glorious. And God planned a very different kind of glorious, a much greater one. The resurrection of Jesus changed everything. And from that moment, His disciples worked unto the Lord, inspired by who they knew God was, inspired by what He had done, and inspired by the future promises of Him returning again. And most, if not all of them, died for their faith. Disillusion, it happens. It's real. And the Lord says, first and foremost, look up. 
Remember who I am. Look back to the cross and you remember what I did. And look forward to what is coming. Because all this is temporary. Be faithful. Be strong. Stand firm. I'm with you to the end of the age, Jesus says. Believe it. Believe it enough to follow Him. Amen? Let's pray.